Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblasige. Can you say that really fast? Uh, Ashley Loblasige. Ashley That's why you're ALB. ALB. Or Karen Lobster Karen. <laughs> or Karen Lobster Karen. I'm here with Christiana Kimmick. Hello. And we are recording our after the episode for Melinda and Sarah Shepper. Yeah. So technically we are... It is uh, 20 and a half and 21 and a half. We might eventually change all of this. If you guys <laughs> like the half things, please let us know. Otherwise, we're going to like new season it and then just like. Oh, my gosh. Make a little shift. <laughs> <laughs> Mix it up. Keep you guys on your toes. Yeah. Because um, I'm sure that the number of the episode really just rocks your world. Yeah. I'm sure it's affecting many yeah, people. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's like part of what you think about. Of course. Keeps us up at night. <laughs> Definitely keeps us up at night. I am so tired. I just got back from a night anniversary, fourth year married anniversary trip to Las Vegas. Yes, you can go to Vegas sober. All right. And Tell them about what you did. What did we do? Okay, uh, we went to bed at midnight, which is kind of a big deal for us. And then we woke up at 9.30 a.m. Also felt like we slept until 3 p.m. Because um, we have toddlers. Yeah, because we have toddlers. So we go to bed at 9 and wake up at 6 and we went and saw the Cirque du Soleil O show and did some gambling and went to some – I didn't do much gambling because I'm terrible at it and it terrifies me <laughs> to give the casino my money. So um, <laughs> that's more of a my husband deal. But um, And then we went and ate good food and it was just super relaxing. And, you know, it's funny. I, I can tell you I honestly did not think about drinking at all. That's awesome. In, yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. No, it just that no. I mean, we had a full bar. In our room. <laughs> we had, it was there. I was actually way more enticed by the mixed nuts, that the like twenty five dollar mixed nuts that were on the oh. sensor in the room. Oh, okay, not at the bar, not the. No, 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 yes, yes, no, okay, no. I was gonna say, no those oh are, no, ew, 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 ew. Yeah. No, no, no. The ones, Germ the bag Central. that are like on the sensor, and they're like. $300 and like if you pick them up in your room they're then not, you're yeah then charged. they charge you you have 60 seconds <laughs> and uh and Dak was like do not touch that I was like but I am so hungry and they're right there he's like do not the, literally a bottle of Fiji water was 2250 in the room what like a tiny one no like one of the big ones oh god 22 it what did it have on the sensor. gold teeth attached to it? No, but so we went downstairs and just bought them for ten or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. The amount of money you know that they just try to get you with. Yeah, it's crazy. There was a resort fee and then a tax on those resort fee. <laughs> I was like, how does that? Work? I was like, this is amazing. Maybe they're the taxing the taxes. I should like build a hotel and then. Tax oh yeah, the that taxes. is just unbelievable. But it was super fun and relaxing and just I read and napped and, you know, I had a really nice time with my husband and, you know, it's where it's funny because you, it's not like what, when you look ahead at your life, you know, at least I should speak for myself. When I looked ahead, these were not the things (laughs) like, this is not how I pictured it, but it is like the good stuff. It is the time, you know, we, the time, like we connect and talk about things and super important for a relationship. And, uh, I think I used to have a, I used to know a woman 
who um, sponsored my friend, and she would tell her, you know, you, you just need to have sex with your husband every now and again to remember why you married them. <laughs> What was it? Remember that you like each other. And uh, I feel like it's that same thing goes for like, just get away, be alone and kind of do the th- kind of the what you did when you were pre-kids and all that right. to remember or pre-life stress, whatever it is. Pre-responsibility. Pre-responsibility, pre, pre-whatever, like right. just in the beginning mm-hmm. and just do that stuff or whatever is now the stuff you like and have it be low key, super helpful. So I think it's great that you guys went to Vegas too. Yeah. You know, know, it's funny. um, And I, he's never used in Vegas. I have, Um, (laughs) I, I've been, I've drank, I actually relapsed in Vegas in my early years and there is not an ounce of me that wants to like go clubbing and drinking. Like, I mean, not an ounce, none, zero, zip. I mean, I I just, it's not there. So I think Vegas is very different at different age, different like times in your yes. life. And so at this time in our life, it's like all about the amazing restaurants and the, the food and like fun and sleeping in and, you know, whatever, room service. But like amazing hotels. Like yeah. Just all yeah. Like just, there. just like that, just like feeling, you know, taken care of and not having to worry about that stuff. But it it has no – in fact, it's like it's it gets – I only can stay there for like two, three days before I'm like, get me out yeah, of here. See ya. Yeah. yeah. Got to go. Got to go. Oh, happy anniversary. Thank you. Happy Thank you. But I'm away. a little on the slower side. So I've, please forgive me for my I'm, – I'm like hung over from – Staying up later than my bedtime, and you said you had a lot of sugar. Oh, and we had a lot of sugar. We had we had yeah. a lot of sugar. You have a sugar hangover. Yeah, I definitely have a sugar hangover. It's a real thing. But the sh- I, w- I was actually pretty good with the sugar. Uh, but I definitely had like things that were sugar, like that I would not normally have. Like I had a sprite. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you know. That's I mean, got a lot in it. I too. know, but it's like it's not like you know something crazy, but like right. it's, I don't eat that, and that has a you know a lot of sugar. And I'm telling you, I, I like I feel I, what it tells me is that I think I would die if I had a drink. <laughs> like literally, I think that if I had a drink, I would <laughs> keel over and die. I had a sprite. I couldn't sleep, and I feel like <laughs> crap. And I'm like, oh my god, if I drank, I would die. Like just. Fall over dead. That's it. Yeah, Forget the rest. Around. Yeah. We need you. We love yeah. you. Yeah. So I'm here. Anyway, <laughs> we're here to talk about Melinda Dixon and Sarah Shepard. What did you, who are we starting with? Let's start with Sarah. Okay. We'll start with Sarah Shepard. Sarah, she's the one who has the, the TV show on VH1 called uh, Love and Listings, mm-hmm. the real estate luxury. Yeah, so, reality TV show. Right. So they're, uh, they meeting the cast are, they're all located in Los Angeles and they do real estate specifically for the luxury and celebrity market. So they deal with a lot Sounds of celebrities. So stressful. Right? So, <laughs> so yeah. stressful. No, that's oh my gosh. tough work. Yeah. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, thank you. So I think that she's, I, I watched a few episodes and was trying to catch up on it. And I know that she, who did she meet? She met Brandy Norwood. You know, Brandy of Brandy and Monica back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she's amazing. Um, I know Michelle, gosh, is it Michelle Williams? Michelle used to be on Destiny's Child. That Michelle. Now I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm forgetting her name, her last name. I think it's Williams, but I could be totally wrong. I know she was working with her to find a house. 
I think that would just be crazy stressful. I would love to meet her because she is amazing. (laughs) I would be kind of pumped. I would work really hard for her. And I can't remember the other celebrities that she specifically was working with Sarah herself. Well, they got picked up for a second season. So, um, yeah, so they're working on season two. And I know Sarah is going to start talking a lot more about her recovery and Mm -hmm. what that looks like. So I, and sharing that with people and being open. And, um, I think that's really cool. Yeah. So she's, she's so cute and I love her personality. Who she, who you see on TV is exactly who you get in person. Just, she's just so open and she's just like a little like bubbly. Yeah. Bubbly and just full of joy and not afraid or ashamed to be herself. And Mm -hmm. she's just, she's so much fun. She is. And, and it's quite an impressive feat that she has been able to stay so connected and sober, not just abstinent from alcohol in the situations that she's in, but connected to a recovery community. She remains connected. I mean, she showed up here with recovery literature, and yeah. you know, ready for her, ready to talk, you know, for the podcast. And she just has remained very connected. And that is something I, I've seen a lot of people go into the celebrity world and just get sucked into that and away from their original healing community. And she has not done that. Yeah. That was really impressive. She was, she, she brought quite a few books with Mm -hmm. her and was ready to share. I think she did share from Gabby Bernstein's book, right? Like a a prayer of meditation that she really Mm -hmm. appreciated and that helped her. Yeah. Um, you know, I just really love, I'm so so nice. Yeah. She's, I'm so impressed that she's so open with it too on TV as well. Yeah. Cause we've seen how difficult it is for people coming onto the podcast. Oh yeah. Sometimes they go through a journey just being ready to share their story. yeah. Yeah. We've had a lot of, so in the last, you know, few weeks more people have, people who've, whose podcasts have been published have been really re- experiencing their life traumas, their Mm -hmm. feelings, their, their narrative, like really, and then publishing it to the world, feeling very vulnerable and exposed. And I will say that, thank God, all of them have come back to us and said, it's been a great journey. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm so glad I did this. Um, But they also said they did not think that they were going to have the feelings and the reactions that they did after doing it, which I thought was really interesting. And I too, I actually posted in my Instagram when my episode went up saying the same thing, which was, you know, I, I battled with it and then it comes out and, and there it is and, and, mm-hmm. and it's there and it, it's documented and it's real and, and people can hear it and they can hear it, you know, and it's just a very, you know, that is a, a, and you know, that is archived in, you know, history. history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, becoming it is a part of history. Yeah. It's becoming a part of history. And so it's just, wow, pretty, uh, it, for some reason it is an experience. It's a, there's an intensity there. Yeah. And I was, so I watched you go, go through that with your podcast and we've had some people who, you know, came back to us after they were scheduled and said, Hey, you know, I'm just, I've been thinking yeah, about it and I'm it. just not comfortable yeah. sharing. I'm not comfortable with people 
hearing it and and not being able to control who that is. Yeah, totally. You know, so people are in different stages. I know. Of, I see people like downloading my story in China. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what is happening? It's like, I don't know yeah. who you are. Uh, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah like I'm what? Sure it's, what you and know? you didn't, I think we shared this too, but when we were first starting the podcast, we were getting it all up and going. We really, we meaning the, the, the people who were all getting the podcast going wanted Ashley to uh, have her beautiful picture that is our cover art now <laughs> as our cover art. My headshot, yeah. We had like 20 options and Ashley was like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you're not using my headshot. Not happening. <laughs> I don't want it to be that personal. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And like the 11th hour, I was like, fine. She's like, fine. So I was like, oh, we had like chosen another things, went back, changed it all. And we're really glad because. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And then it's like on spot, you know, I can see it everywhere and seeing your, you know, and then I think about my kids listening to it and I'm like, I can't go there. Well, and then, and then I realized that I have two little boys and they literally could not care less. No, they couldn't care. No, they really, and they're probably, it'll be like till they're 40 before they actually They'll probably be like, oh. Yeah. They'll probably have kids. They'll be like, mom, they'll empathize. They'll be like, mom, I'm so sorry you went through that. No, it'll be their kids that are like, my grandma. (laughs) My grandma. She was a saucy lady. (laughs) <laughs> the legend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm wait my kids don't care. I'm waiting for my grandkids to care. So uh do you have what do you have on Sarah? <laughs> uh so what I have on Sarah, the first thing when I was listening to her podcast that jumped out at me was she we kind of went in chronological order. Yeah. And she started talking about the beginnings of her eating disorder right. in high school. And a statement that she made that was interesting to me was so she she struggled with her weight. She struggled with wanting to feel like you know she wanted to be skinnier. Yeah, yeah. And whenever she felt skinny, she felt powerful. Right. Like she felt in control. But one of the things she also said because she said people start she started throwing up her food, and then yeah. people would make comments, "You look so good. Oh my yeah. gosh, what have you been doing?" Yeah. And so she said she felt powerful because she was skinny, which was the result that she wanted. But she felt like she was lying. Right. Okay. So imposter syndrome. Yes. So, okay. So I feel for me, you know, I, Sarah's episode was about recovery from an eating disorder and the alcoholism is secondary. Mm -hmm. And I relate to that because I, that's, there's, even though my alcoholism was, you know, very intense and, and, and addiction, drug addiction, substance use addiction, the, it's where the core of it is in the food, is mm-hmm. in the body stuff, is in that self-worth stuff. And so she said so many things that resonated with me personally. And, you know, a couple of them was all I did was think about the food and being skinny. And people told me that I had a fog during those years. Yes. And um, and then this this like hit me. There were two things that was like, yes, this is like, yes, I I am you, you are me. I get it. Alcohol was a relief from the eating disorder, waking up and talking about how awful the drinking was, but then thinking about my body image and realizing the alcohol gave me a break from that. So she wanted to do it again, Mm -hmm. like having this horrible blackout hangover. But then, you know, I never want to do this again, but it gave me such relief from that thought process, that disease, that crazy that... I'm going to, I can't wait to drink again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, one, it, I looked up some statistics, one in 10 bulimia 
patients have substance use disorders. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that the binge eating disorder, BED, binge eating disorder and bulimia are together because most people binge and then they purge. Mm-hmm. So the binging is there and then you have the, the compulsive eating and then the anorexia and restricting. And I think like I see so many women, myself included, I mean, <laughs> I go to meetings specifically for, you know, for eating disorders or, or we call them um, complicated relationships with food. And I think like 85% of the women in those meetings are also in uh, also in recovery from substance, some sort of substance. And the reality is that once you get rid of the substance, that eating disorder comes back up, that complicated relationship with food. But when you really examine it, it was the first way that you coped. Mm. It was the first thing. And then the alcohol and the drugs became frankly easier to deal, like easier. That was easier than living in a clear, you know, quote unquote, clear head with a brain that just, that's all you think about. Yeah. That's interesting. And and I just, I think that was really important because I know a lot of women who are, are sober, who just struggle with it and they don't reach out for help because it's just part of their struggle. Mm-hmm. And they think like, oh, you know, they, oh, everyone, you know, no one, or, or they either think everyone does it or no one does it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no one deals with this. Um, it's just in my head. I'll control it. I'll do another diet. I'll do this cleanse. I'll do this restriction. Uh, screw it. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. And just going through the, just every possible thing you can do to try to solve the problem. And it's like whack-a-mole. And, and, that is a very, very common story. Yeah. I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> so I think, I think it's really important and something I want people to know listening is that there are, you know, there are lots of eating disorder programs, like outpatient programs. Uh, I believe there's an online program, just straight up cognitive behavioral therapy, if you, individual therapy, Overeaters Anonymous, Food Addicts Anonymous, and Overeaters Anonymous, and I believe Food Addicts Anonymous, that includes bulimia, anorexia, because most people switch through the different things. They restrict, they purge, they binge, oh, so they'll move that. through the different, yeah. Yeah, so someone who, um, like, someone like me, uh, like, I'll try to restrict, and that's a joke, and I can't. And then I, you know, when I was young, I was like, well, if I can't restrict, I'll purge, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You go through the cycle of just like all the different things. And so it's really about, you know, if you don't have an eating disorder, you might have disordered eating, Mm. you know, and that is still something that drives people crazy. Right. And especially if you live in a place where, you know, people are thin or or that, you know, I I look around and um, it was funny when we were in Las Vegas, you know, there were a lot of different sizes and shapes, a lot. And I was somewhere in the middle. And, you know, come back to Orange County and that is not the case. And mm-hmm. so, but then, you know, if I travel to Houston, I'm the smallest person. So it's it's also a matter of like where you are. Mm-hmm. And Sarah grew up in Cota de Casa, literally where Real Housewives of Orange County started. Yeah. And anybody who's been to Orange County knows that it's a lot of very good looking, very fit people. And so that it's like what you compare yourself to. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and I had less of a hard time, although still a hard time, you know, when I wasn't in like inundated with that. So that's also been part of my process is like, who are we comparing ourselves to? Mm Because there's always going to be someone better and always someone worse. But then I think the other side of that is if you're comparing yourself to someone, you don't know what they're struggling with. Totally. Their story could literally be they're struggling with some sort of an eating disorder. Totally. You know, and so they're, they look it's amazing on BS the outside. Too. It's, it is. Yeah. It's total BS too, because I'm, I'm, I'm in rooms with women who have amazing bodies and they want to kill themselves. Isn't that crazy to me? And, like that's and just... I have to be honest with you when I see them in the meetings, and I've talked to some of my other friends about it, and I like have to dispel this. I'm like, why are you here? You have the perfect body. Like I have judgment about it, right? Because mm-hmm. in my head, you know, in my head, it's if you have this, everything's fine. And that is Sarah talked about that. Mm-hmm. She finally got sk- skinny and she wanted to kill her. Like she, that was the most miserable she'd ever been, mm-hmm. you know, because we think that if we get the money, if we get the guy, if we get to that place in work, if we get that car, once we get to be that gene size, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like that is truly the thought process. And, you know, if you guys haven't listened to Brittany Carbone's episode, she's like one of the early episodes. She's episode four. Four. And she is just incredible. I highly encourage you to follow her on social media at Brittany Carbone. And she is just all about, she talks about the mindset shift. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has lost 65 pounds and and is, you know, doing bodybuilding, you know, competitions. She's one of those women you see on Instagram who like has the before and after that's crazy in the whole story, but she's, I know her in person and it's real. It's mm-hmm. legit. And she talks about that, that mental shift. Sarah and Sarah, Sarah and I both know her well. And, um, she talks about that mental shift and what we know is that you have to get skinny between the ears before your body will follow. Wow. That's a really good statement. It's amazing how, I always go back to whenever you said in your episode, you can't fix your broken brain with your broken brain. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so true because we were just talking about, this is semi-related, a photo shoot that I just did for dance where a friend of mine wanted to do a before and after photo shoot showing how, you know, I'm a dancer, dance heels, words hurt dance heels was, was the, uh, was the, the topic. And so we had to take words that had been spoken over us. Mine was worthless and she wrote them on our body. And then we did a shoot kind of like, you know, semi like unpowerful poses. And then she erased that word off of us and wrote the opposite. So mine went to worthy wrote that on me. And then we did like a real powerful pose and it was showing, you know, before and after. And I was telling Ashley that whenever my friend was writing worthless on my leg, she was, she kept looking at me going, I can't finish this word. I cannot write write this this on you. And she's like, can we pick another word? And I was like, no, this is what my struggle has been. And and she just kept saying, this is not you. This is not you. This is not you. And it was a powerful moment for me because it took what had been inside my head and put it like, like out you there. saw how you saw how difficult number one it was for someone to who loves you like it literally mm-hmm. pained them yeah to do that and also it probably was somewhat uncomfortable like wait I really think that about myself yes like that I would like and you see it written on yourself and you're like no yeah I don't want I don't want that here that was what it was and it was like it took it it took it from, it's almost like it came from outside my brain. Right. 
and like came and took it out. Yeah, it took and you it were out. Like, oh God, I don't wrote want it on my body, yeah. and I was like, no, no. go away. Yeah. Like to yeah. the point where like after like our good words were written on us, I left the photo shoot with the words still written down my totally. leg. Totally, that's awesome. Because yeah. I was like, oh, right, this is right, this is true. But what a powerful. That's so cool. That's such a cool experiment. I've never done that, but I was telling you like psychodrama where we've had to act things out. I went to the Meadows and in two thousand five and we did psychodrama mm-hmm. um the third week we were there they still do the survivors program if you have the money and time oh my god go do it it is life changing and i so anyway i was 18 i was like this is the dumbest <laughs> shit i have ever <laughs> ever like i mean i couldn't even it was it was it pained me and i was the youngest person by a long shot and uh you know, I'm watching other people. I'm watching people. There was a 70 year old man in my group and I'm watching him act out like doing, you know, the work and like crying. And he walked, I swear to God. So he walked, he knew he was an older man, 70 years old, white hair and walks in and he's kind of keeps to himself conservative. And he start. you know, he does this psychodrama work, sits in the chair, closes his eyes. We act, you know, acts out his trauma with the therapist. We're all sitting there in the group, like the whole shebang. And I don't remember what any, I don't remember any of his story. What I do remember is that he walked out of the building and there was a playground behind the building that we did this in. And he got on the swing set and started swinging with a huge smile on his face. Like he was 10 years old. It was the crazy, he like, he was lighter. Like actually like physically altered and different after leaving and doing that work. So I know that it has like a very visceral, you have a very visceral response to a lot of these things and they do different things depending on what, you know, what your struggles are. But it was just that kind of stuff can be really powerful of, of writing it out or putting, you know, whatever it is, because it really puts into perspective like these things you think are innocuous that you think, mm. you know, like these little clips here and there that mm-hmm. you think are not, you know, oh, I don't really think that or oh, blah, blah. And then you're like, what? well, I, but I treat myself that way. Yep. If when you take out what's in your head and you get it, at least for me visually. Oh, it's disturbing. It always, it shook me to the core, you know, it changed my whole day, you know, and, and uh, so I think we we're kind of talking about just the perspectives and, yeah. okay, so your perspective on, you know, that person is they have the ideal body, so they should be fine. But see right. what's in between, what's in that person's brain. Right. What's in between the ears, right? And right. are they skinny between the ears? Are they happy? Are they, po- you know, whatever it is. It's so much about, I can't believe uh, the longer I'm sober and in recovery and Apparently, I'm recovering from everything at this point. Um, I'm like, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. I like, oh my god! But you know, the more I see that it's totally about your mindset shift. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it's about doing the things that you're told to do and doing the work, but like, you know, whatever the things are—the writing and the meetings and the group activities and whatever. But over time, it's so much. There's so much there that it's about that mindset shift. And that is so hard. Mm. It is so hard. And particularly for people who want immediate results, like yours truly, I am like, okay, come on, come on, come on. Like, okay, (laughs) okay. My mindset shift. I've had a shift. It shifted. I I definitely am shifting. I feel this, you know, it's like, it's not, you cannot force it it, to do something. And the harder you try, like the, the, the more it pushes back. And so it has to be 
like a genuine, genuine shift. And I'm, I'm super grateful that I'm connected to women like Sarah, women like Brittany and, and, and different, you know, friends that I have who, you know, show me that that can happen. Cause that's what it's about. It's about seeing other people do it and going, okay, okay. They did it. They're, mm-hmm. they get it. Okay. I can do it too. Yeah. And then just living authentically, you know, yeah. in the meantime, like just being so honest and so real and which is crazy. You know, I come back to this with what Sarah is embarking on. Mm-hmm. I mean, just living authentically and in that world, it, that that's hard. Yeah, the end of, not the end, uh, there are some scenes in Love and Listings where they basically get all the cast members together and they call it, I don't know if they actually do this every week, but they call it a networking meeting. So they're realtors from, you know, different real estate groups and they come together to network and to talk about the houses that they have and do they have right. buyers, do you have sellers, or whatever the case may be. And it's at a bar. You yeah. know, oh, yeah. Sarah's sitting there with her water, her yeah. club soda, oh, yeah. whatever she's got and doesn't phase oh, yeah. her at all. Well, and that's not even like it's the club scene and the, the mm. you know, the bottle service and the, the I mean, that's the stuff where I would think it would be really hard yeah. because it, there's so much of that. Sure. Um, so much of that. But she's, you know, she is, um, we, we have some upcoming projects with her, um, which are really exciting, um, but she's really you know, it's cool to see people really about their recovery and, you know, just wanting to be better, like a lifetime Mm -hmm. commitment of like, I just want to get better and be better. And I'm interested in what that looks like. Absolutely. And that's been Sarah. And we're so appreciative to yeah, have had her on the she podcast. Came in. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, so we also had Melinda in episode twenty-one, and Melinda is one of our admissions counselors. So that's been so a lot cool. of fun. We've had yeah. some of our Lion Rock employees who've been so open and willing to share their stories, and and all their stories are crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone's so different. I think yeah. that's what I also love is. People have gone through like all the different types of yes, you know, overcome obstacles. I mean, these people are badasses. Yeah, they've overcome such crazy things, and I really loved Melinda's story because we haven't had someone on. I know who's we, gone we through ACA, right? Yeah. Adult children of alcoholics and, and she, dysfunctional families and dysfunctional families. That's right. And so Melinda shared that she her recovery is recovery from growing up in a, a childhood where she was the child of an alcoholic parent. And so that contributed to massive codependency and... And lack of self-worth. Lack of self-worth. And mm-hmm. fi- so finding her self-worth yeah. in others and the girls that she's dated and, and been with and been in long-term yeah. relationships with. And one of the things that she talked about... So I always like bringing this up. So she talked about how her therapist had diagnosed her with complex PTSD, so Mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder. And so she was wondering, okay, PTSD, you know, we've talked about this before for PTSD Awareness Month in June. You know, PTSD, you often hear about it with veterans because that's where it's the most diagnosed. Or first responders. Or first responders, right. For Melinda, where she got the complex PTSD from was from repeated yet unpredictable abuse and neglect and intermittent love. She never knew what was coming her way from her parent. It caused hypervigilance on her part, and it caused her to develop coping skills to help her through her childhood, but those coping skills didn't translate to adulthood. What was happening is she started reacting to adult situations in childlike ways. Right. 
And I want you to explain a little bit more about that because you are so much better with your words. (laughs) No, no, I've just been doing this a long time. Yeah. So, you know, post-traumatic stress is about the chemical reactions, the physical, emotional, chemical reactions in your body to a stressful situation, to a certain situation. And you can have two people experience the same thing and one leave with PTSD and the other not or in the same family. Mm -hmm. And you can have one person experience it totally differently. Certain things like going to war is sure to give you PTSD, right? Like that is... It has all the makings of everything you need for that recipe for PTSD, right? So I think that's the most common. It was the first diagnosis. It's the most commonly understood. Um, And then, you know, next, you know, um, first responders and rape victims. Like we, so we've sort of created this understanding of these big traumatic events, Mm -hmm. but traumas that are less obvious to everyone also create these this disorder also create you know these feelings the same reaction the same hypervigilance so um that's something that is becoming more and more understood mm-hmm. and is really important for people to hear and know that um you really truly can have real PTSD from you know seeing something on television from you know a, a childhood where maybe you weren't hit but you were verbally picked apart every single day. You know, there's just a lot. It's, you know, it's about how you experienced the situation. So the way that coping skills work when you grow up in a dysfunctional family is that you create coping skills to deal with whatever that dysfunction is. So if you grow up and if you grew up in a home with a single mom and she had, you, you know, you, you have your siblings and she's working a million jobs. And the way to be supportive of that family system is to not need anything from anyone because the more you need, the more of a burden that is. Mm. So you're, so you are wholly self-sufficient. And that is, that is, you know, uh, that translate as an act of love because you recognize that the situation, there's nothing left to give. And so you're showing up as a self-sufficient part of the family, which translates to you don't ask for help. Mm. Okay. So that translates, you don't need anybody else. You don't ask for help. And that anybody who does ask for help or does need something from you, that's not an act of love. That's, Mm. that's an act of disrespect. So that's how that, right. So that's how that translates as an adult moving forward. So, but when you're a kid and you have that single mom and the siblings and that's the situation, all of that is a great coping skill because that's accurate. But we take the same coping skills into our adulthood, our childhood coping skills into our adulthood. And now we're an adult with adult situations and we're still using childhood coping skills Mm. in situations that it doesn't work anymore. Right. Suddenly you're, you know, you're married and you can't ask for help or, you know, the way to feel safe, you know, codependency, you grow up in a home where, you know, you don't know when you're going to be abandoned, when you're going to be hit, when you're going to be loved. So you develop coping skills, which allow you to be so perfectly in tuned with how other people feel and how they're going to react and just try to please them and be the best you can, be quiet, you know, useful, whatever the things are. 
as you grow up, that's those are going to be you're going to just take and, and Melinda called it the blueprint. You're going to take that blue. She called it a blueprint of love, but it's actually also just a blueprint with with the love blueprint in there. It's a blueprint for all relationships, for you know all things that this is how this is handled. Mm-hmm. And so, if you don't adapt, and adaptability is something that happens with healthy people, mm-hmm. where they change coping skills based on the circumstances and what's going on. I mean, obviously we all have favorite coping skills, but they are able to adapt to new circumstances where those of us who struggle with this stuff, we really bring the same stuff forward and we're dealing, you know, childlike, you know, you know, childlike coping skills in adult situations. That makes so much sense. And I want to, you mentioned the blueprint. I think this is something that's really important because Melinda mentioned her blueprint of love, which is what she knew love was, which she categorized as someone who took care of her, sometimes played with her like a toy and then kind of treated her disposably when they were done with her and then occasionally beat her. So that kind of comes into the intermittent love. You don't know what's coming and when. It doesn't make any sense. Um, So she said this is what she went looking for in the universe. She went looking for someone with that blueprint without even knowing it. Right. So, yeah, and we all do it. Mm -hmm. We all do it. Someone who will meet our needs and match our our dysfunction. We all, you know, we all do that. Um, and it's weird how it works because you really just attract. And you don't even no, you don't, realize you don't it. realize it. It's so weird, but it is, you know, it's cellular. It's really, it's, it's coded into your cells, like what that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's um, research that talks about like the amount of times a baby is touched as a child has a direct link to their IQ, like how many times they're cared for, how many times they are loved and hugged and, you know, how many hugs a day you need in order to release a certain amount of, you know, chemicals. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence that presence and affection really young makes an enormous difference. Mm. And there are cases where children who were perfectly healthy, like everything about their, you know, physi- physiology was was normal, but they had such little interaction touch. They were kept, you know, in a basement or a closet and, mm. you know, didn't get like, the, and they are mentally disabled for the rest of their lives. Like their brain cannot catch, and the brain is an incredible organ. The brain wants yeah, to heal yeah, itself. Yeah, it, it wants to heal itself. Yeah. It can heal itself from remarkable things. But there are stories where basically, you know, certain amount of abandonment and lack of interaction, lack of being talked to or read to, you know, whatever is, mm-hmm. I mean, permanently damaging to that child. And so that's relevant. Because if you are someone who ex- – that's relevant because how what you experience, whether we like it or not, <laughs> in your childhood does give you a blueprint going forward of what is normal. Mm. And your brain remembers it and categorizes it. Mm. And we all think what we grew – like we all – whatever we grew up with was our normal. Yep. We've seen that on the podcast. Yes. Yeah, it's our um, – yeah, we've seen it – 
a lot of us come out of it and go, yeah, that wasn't normal. Yeah, like my normal wasn't normal, but some, many don't. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been in, I went to this seminar where they were talking about the most violent place in America is in the home. Um, because we like, you can't hit another adult and that's assault, like a a same size or whatever size adult, but you can hit a child and that the violent, like violence in the home and spanking and all this stuff. And it was really interesting how that changes the brain. And, and, you know, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not an expert about this. This was just, I was just in this class listening and learning and, you know, frankly, it's very confusing what, how to discipline and all that. It's, it's a tricky situation, but it was interesting because, a guy stood up in this session and we were talking about all these different types of discipline and, and, and violence in the home. And a guy sh- stood up and said and got really defensive about how his dad used to whip him with a belt. And, you know, he I got the belt and, and you know, this, that, the other. And, and it sounded particularly violent, not just the belt, but it sounded like a particularly violent situation. But he was so defensive about it because – the speaker, the scientist was talking about the science that says this, this is, this does not help our children. It doesn't, what what got me was it doesn't even work from a discipline aspect. I was like, okay, well maybe you damage them, but if it gets them to not run in the street, you know, whatever. Um, But the, the research shows that that's not the case, that it actually isn't even effective. I was like, well, I need something effective. Interesting. <laughs> like I'm just looking for effective. Um, but but you know it was so interesting to hear this guy defending what was clearly a <laughs> physical assault and abuse. Right. I mean it wasn't like borderline like this is how we used to do it. Right. You know it, like it was it was above and beyond. But to mm. him it was normal. Wow. And even challenging that normal brought up for him, like even saying like, this might not be normal. That was not a reality as an adult he could deal with mm-hmm. because sitting in that, I don't know what the heck he was doing in there, but right, probably should not have been in there, but hearing t- to him that that was bad and that that created problems and whatever, mm-hmm. that, that dissonance, that did not fit with what he had as as a child and maybe what he did with his children. Wow. And so he couldn't back out of it. It was really interesting. And I think we get, you know, we've talked a lot about our narratives and I think we get really stuck in those about what's normal. And if you get stuck in your narrative from childhood mm. and it's not a super great healthy one in terms of coping mechanisms, and maybe even if it is a super great healthy one coping mechanisms, you still need to adapt and you haven't adapted, then you may not have the tools to process what it means to see your childhood in a different light. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I think a lot of the time there are people out there who, for them to understand the truth, whatever that truth is, in the context of like, let's say this guy, let's just take this guy I'm talking about for easy example's sake. Let's say this guy, we were to sit him down and say, buddy, you, you know, putting you in a closet and whipping you till you were, you know, black and blue and bleeding and, you know, whatever, like that is, that is abuse that steps over any even normal line, cultural or otherwise, like Mm -hmm. that is abusive. And because he, that was really taken too far, even from the belt perspective, Mm -hmm. then he would have to come to terms with the fact that he had 
he was violently abused as a child. Mm-hmm. And he may not have the emotional skills or dexterity to deal with that. And so sometimes we ask people to, you know, and I think this is super, super important for dealing with family relationships, super and someone I, something I needed to understand. I really wanted my parents to do inner, deeper child work. And I would try to illuminate for them various things in my childhood, their childhood, whatever. And the reality was I had had years of therapy and support group and blah, 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 conversation, recovery, sobriety, whatever you want to call it, years of dissecting and the, and the tools to pick that apart and, and a place to share it. And I was asking people who did not have that, any of that background, support group, necessity, mm-hmm. you know, any of that stuff, coping skills, any of that stuff to unearth these things. Mm-hmm. And I had these really big realizations about forcing, asking people to come to realizations that they don't have the tools yet, the coping skills yet to admit to or deal with and how yeah. that's not fair. Because when people wanted me to deal with truths and pain I didn't know how to deal with, I drank over it. And yet I'll turn around and say, you need to deal with this truth. You need to admit that this was this. You need to whatever, like forcing that process on someone with who does not have the tools. Yeah. But when the tables were turned, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. There was That was the whole, that was why I ended up where I did. Yeah. Because I didn't have the tools. That's an important point. And, and that also brings brings us to kind of the last point that we had in regards to Melinda, which was she was talking about a conversation she was having with one of her therapists. And <laughs> she was, I love how honest she was. She was like, I, I was kind of, I was getting angry at my therapist because she was starting to call <laughs> her out. So the therapist kept saying, you don't want to do the work. You don't want to do the work. And Melinda's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm like I'm here in therapy in the here, chair. And then I'm going I'm pretty to sure I'm paying you, lady. ACA. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing the work. What yeah. are you talking about? And so she said, Belinda said, the only time I was feeling relief was whenever I was in the meetings, working the program, or in therapy. What the therapist meant by she didn't want to do the work didn't mean she wasn't showing up. Right. It meant that she didn't want to feel the pain. What Melinda didn't understand was that the work was actually feeling your feelings. And she sought help from one of her... Uh, fellow ACAers. And uh, he said, Melinda, everything that you've shoved down and numbed out and avoided your whole entire life is now going to come out. You're not going to die from feeling your feelings. Yeah. And, but it feels, it sure feels like it. And, and you've talked yeah, about this a lot. So yeah. I want you to elaborate on it. <laughs> yeah, it does. It definitely, you know, that for me, um, a, a few things on that. Yes, all of it's going to come out. Okay. But it doesn't all come out at once. It comes out in bits that you can handle. And mm-hmm. that's the beauty of, of like the sobriety journey is that, you know, truths that I couldn't handle at 19 when I got sober, I have unearthed over the years and had different breakthroughs and different things because I keep searching. I keep, you know, doing the work, feeling the feelings and moving forward and then going into the next phase of life and, and carrying that same, you know, set of of um, coping skills or, you know, using therapy groups and, um, and community and what have you. So, you know, the, 
you get what you can handle. You get what, and, and sometimes that feels like something you can't handle, but you are, ne- you are almost never getting it all at once. Mm. You are not going to get the entirety of your life's pain blow up in your face as soon as you enter into some sort of recovery. It's going to come out piece by piece. And each piece is going to feel like the end of the world because you haven't dealt with it, because you haven't felt it. And so you'll go through that, you'll, and, you know, with other people and that support and tools and techniques, and then the next piece will come. And it'll just, so yes, all of it will come, but it's not going to come at once. And I think that's so important because it's really terrifying when people tell you that and you're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I don't, not trying to feel all my life's feelings. Like at what, you know, it's bad enough with today's, you know, you're like, you're like, are you kidding? I can't deal with like, you know, I don't even want to deal with this piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I can't deal with anything, anything. I can't deal with the mailman. How am I going to deal with my whole life? You know, whatever. So I mean, really, like that is, that is, and when you get sober, that's how you feel. Like, you, or you know, come into recovery, whatever that looks like. That is how you feel. I mean, you know, this, you do not get come into recovery on a winning streak, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's, you, just, that's <laughs> right. Like that's things are not that's on so the good. up and up. If yeah. you are coming into recovery, that you are, you're like, okay, this isn't working, yeah. right? So typically, that's it's pretty bad when it's not working. So. Don't fear. You won't feel all your feelings at once. I don't think we're even capable of of that, but you will feel what you need to. And if you keep doing it, that's why it's an ongoing process. You know, when people say like, oh, do you stop going to meetings or whatever? No, because this is an ongoing process. It's still unearthing things. And if you continue to do the work, you'll continue to have different experiences. A quick example for me was when I graduated from college, I had a very distinct picture of myself going to law school and, you know, potentially working in criminal law and being this enforcer and justice person. And I had had this picture of myself for so long. And when I went to work at the public defender's office and I experienced what that was like and I, I you know, looked around and thought about what I really wanted those things didn't add up. And it was such a crisis for me because it was the way I saw myself. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a touch point of growth that sometimes we are people that we didn't expect. Like we picture ourselves yeah. as someone we aren't. And that that clarity becomes very painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to, we have to reconcile that because if you try to force it, that's where you have a lifetime of unhappiness. Yep. Um, and maybe you have tried to force it and you need to reconcile it in the middle and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But that honesty and that truth, that was so painful for me. And I remember the first time I called my best friend and the first, I had wanted to go to law school since I was five years old. Oh. And I called my best friend and I said, I like could barely get the words out. And I said, I don't want to go to law school. And I just started crying. And oh, I was devastated. Yeah. Like in my own decision. <laughs> but that's understandable but, because but this it is was such an it was an identity thing. Yeah. It was a path. It was all these things for me. And the reason that the having community, you know, being in recovery through these periods, through these different times was that I was not ready to reconcile that identity at 19 when I came in. Mm, I was not ready. And by this time, I was something on the, you know, four or five years sober. So at that point, 
I was, I had had some tools, I had some stability, I had, you know, life and accomplishment enough to build on, enough su- success to build on that this revelation, this experience, this pain point that was definitely there mm-hmm. from when I got sober, like was definitely part of the package of stuff I needed to deal with. Mm-hmm. I was ready. All of the components came together and I was ready. I was not happy about it. <laughs> very, very unhappy about it, but I was ready. And so that's an example of like, if you stay in the process, mm-hmm. all of the things that are going to come up, all of those feelings, you may, you're not going to feel them all at once, but they will come up. And, and if you feel them as they come, if you, you know, that's where the freedom comes. And that's another example of the power of community, which is also a recurring theme in all of our podcasts here is how the community helps you, whether it's by being able to talk to somebody or just by being having the accountability to show up and knowing that you have to or you're going to get a few phone calls. show up. Yep. Whether you want to or not. Yep. Um, Helping process through certain things, helping to understand other people have gone through the same things as well, feeling acceptance. It's just phenomenal. (laughs) It's, and you really, I think somewhere, at least I do, want to discount it. Like I really Mm -hmm. want to discount, like I don't need (laughs) you to have my experience for me to feel better. You know, like that's the kind of stuff I think you're like, why do I need that? I don't need it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That's me like not wanting to rely on anyone else. And also feeling like that's so lame that I need, like that I feel better because someone else had my, you know, I just have all these judgments about (laughs) my own thing. And (laughs) And then when I get into it and do it, I'm like, yeah. They were right. It's powerful. It's super powerful. Yeah. And it's totally um, and it's totally worth it. And if they told me I was going to feel everything I needed to feel as soon as I got sober, I probably would not have, would have gotten have sober. Run. Yeah. Gone and lived in like, the hills. Well, that's, that's, that's not happening. <laughs> yeah. You'd be that person yeah, wandering like, yeah, in the hills yeah, by In the hills. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it's uh, an Ashley Loop lesson game. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Do you want to feel all your feelings or drink? Like, hmm. Hmm. That's a hard one. Yeah. Uh, pretty <laughs> sure I'm not ready to feel all my feelings. I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. So thank God they didn't tell me that because I, I really would have um, I really would have freaked out. You would have run. You would have run a marathon across the country. <laughs> yeah. Knows where you would have been. Totally. Totally. Yep, wherever we go, there we are. Uh, Thank you so much to Melinda and Sarah for your wonderful and authentic Mm. and uh, raw stories. And Uh, hilarious. Both of them have such great senses of humor. Super senses of humor. Mm -hmm. We are so grateful for all of you that listen. Please go to Apple Podcasts and click reviews and leave us a review. It really helps us if you're listening and you want to be supportive in some way, shape or form. I know that sounds like a nothing, but it really does help. Mm-hmm. And also um, our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We respond. We will listen. We get lots of awesome communication. And after this, after Melinda's podcast, I received a text message from someone who told me that the episode inspired them to go to their first ACA meeting and that they've never related to something so much in their entire life. That's amazing. 
and I wanted to cry and I sent it to Melinda and it was wonderful. And I love hearing stuff like that. We love, love, please share with us if, if something moves you, if you want more of something, you know, tell us how that, what's going on because we record this in our booth and then we don't hear anything and we just hope you're having a good time on the other end. <laughs> we just send it on yeah, out. Yeah, we just send it on out. Fingers. Hope for the best. Um, so we'd love, love to hear from you. Podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. And stay tuned for another amazing guest next week. And we hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Later, Gators. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 